Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by Duke University's Arete Initiative. This summer, from July 9th to the 14th, they're going to be hosting the High School Summer Seminar on Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the idea's natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. This seminar is taught by several Duke University instructors and professors and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There is no fee associated with applying or attending, and those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. Students interested in applying should email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. That's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26, 2019. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Tim, Heidi, welcome back. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks, David. David, there are huge snowflakes outside of my window in Seattle. <laughs> I think like the third successive podcast, which is crazy, crazy for yeah. Seattle. I was, um, I, w- I saw Jeffrey Overstreet, who, who's been on Libromania a couple of times. He's a friend of mine, film credit. He lives in Seattle and he posted on his Facebook pictures of the snow there. It was just, I think he just posted something like, what in the world? <laughs> Along with it. Yeah. So this brings up an interesting question, actually, because... Matt Bianco claims now on, on his Facebook page or somewhere on the Close Reads Facebook group, he claims that he's not against banter. He's against small talk. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, refrain, the, I hear a what lot. Is, what is the difference then between small talk and banter? Is a conversation about the difference between small talk and banter, banter or small talk? <laughs> and is that, the conver- man. Is, is the conversation about snow, that is that small talk? Is that the idea that that's small talk? I think he might argue that that is small talk if it continues for more than a sentence. I would say what Tim <laughs> said was perfectly appropriate, lighthearted entrance. Yeah. But what I am doing now, I think Matt might have tuned out a long but, time ago. But does the fact that we're now talking about it in a meta way move it into the banter realm? I think it well, moves it above both small talk and banter. I think it oh, moves it into transcendence, philosophy. Transcendence <laughs> yeah. genre. Yes. As soon as we ask it's what is genre. <laughs> right. Well said. Well said. And now it comes full circle because we're actually talking about the book now. Exactly. Well done. This is how banter and small talk. So and I I don't mind <laughs> either of them. Although small talk when it goes on gets a little annoying. So I'm gonna stop talking. You no, know, weirdly I prefer small talk a lot more on a podcast than I do in person. Oh. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I'm curious about that, but then I feel like I'll just be prolonging the small talk. No, I think it's <laughs> probably I one of those. You to explain. I, I think now I'm gonna I'm gonna like a bunch of people who who want to who are like run into me at conferences and stuff are gonna be like feel like they can't now. But I think it's one of those things where when you when you um when you get in public and you're at a homeschool convention or a conference or something, and it's a very busy time and people come talk to you and it, and they start talking about things that come across as small talk. It can be disorienting <laughs> mm-hmm. so i think that's mm-hmm. what I mean, is when you're in person sometimes it's like i've got you know on the one hand i've got one person who's trying to buy a book or ask me a question and then someone else is engaging in small talk and i genuinely want to hear about their small talk but then i've got this other person who needs me that can be tiring and disorienting and you don't know who you're supposed to help first that's where small talk can be disorienting i think in matt bianco's case he just doesn't want to hear hear about people's lives so <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Matt's a great guy, and uh, you know, contrary to public belief, is not a uh, is not a grump. Um, he's great at banter too. <laughs> I he's one of my favorite people in the world, Matt Bianco. Yeah, so. yeah. So okay, well, let's stop being nice to him and okay. uh, let's be right, nice to someone on. else because our friend Angelina Sanford announced this very morning before we recorded that she is launching. Uh, I guess two new podcasts. I don't know all the details of it, but we want to just say uh, we want to say thank you to her for all of the time that she's spent on the show. You know, we've done yeah. this podcast for like three years or something, and mm-hmm. things eventually are going to change. Nothing stays the same forever. So, we just want to say thank you to her for the time she's put in on the show, um, the the great conversations we've had, 
the many hours that she's spent being on the show and preparing for it and uh, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, we just want to say thank you. Best of luck to her. We're going to be paying attention to those podcasts. Yeah, I'm sure you can find out about those over on her, her, uh, uh, her Facebook page, her author page over on Facebook. And I'm sure she'll announce that, you know, soon. I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know the details. So I'm not trying to withhold something, but just check with her if you want to know more. And, it's, and when we know stuff, we'll post it over on the Close Reads uh, Facebook page and try to David, share it as much as we can. So, yeah. The three of us, you and Angelina and I did the first Close Reads podcast. I can't even remember what the book was. It was, was a, a good sh- man. It's hard to find. Yeah, I was a listener. Really? Yeah. I started out as the listener. I remember I was taking a walk, listening to <laughs> and thinking, this is going to be great. I love No it. kidding. Yes, that's true. Wow. Look at you. You're like, you're like a, an upwards mobility story, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't really just, know how upwards I'm it just is. That's a reader. so good. I'm just a reader who loves talking about stuff and loves listening to people who love literature and Angelina has has just taught me so much as a reader and as the teacher and I'm so grateful and we're going to really miss her over here and on close reads but we'll stay in touch. Yeah, yeah, she's got, you know, she's got, you know, her own platform has grown. Um hopefully we've helped contribute to that in some way like hopefully yeah. she's found new listeners and and hopefully the new shows will will do really well. Um and we're here for them. So check out what Angelina is up to and uh, we just wanted to say uh, congratulations to her on that new endeavor and, and thanks to her for being a part of things. We will be continuing Close Reads and we have some some surprises, some some things going on that we've been planning for a long time. So uh, we'll announce those coming up soon. And uh, the one thing I do need to announce though is just sort of practical. Originally, Sense and Sensibility was going to be the next book and then Little Bridges. But uh, to accommodate some of our our guests and our, our, you know, our guest hosts and things like that, we're going to be swapping those. So starting... After we do finish the spy who came from the cold, we'll jump into little britches, and uh, Adam Andrews is going to be joining us for that. Uh, Heidi and I, and then after that, we'll do sense and sensibility. And we've got some special guests who are going to be joining us for that. Meanwhile, but David, but you cannot yet announce who the special guest will be, can you? No, I'm going to I'm going to save that. Um, yeah. I, I'll just go ahead yeah. and save that. But then I also want to let people know that Tim is going to be he- diving headlong into some Shakespeare stuff this spring. Uh, you're going to be doing what Macbeth and the Fellow this spring for us. That's right. So lots of lots of you know he, that's his first that's your first love right is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, so. it is. I read Julius Caesar with my students this week, and they were hmm. I, I I saw the Facebook talk chatter about whether or not Brutus was kind of like good guy or bad guy, and I proposed that question to them. Hmm. It was hmm. fun. Yeah, um, it's a good question, an age old question. Yeah, very yeah. much. Um, I think there's some uh, there's some of those similar conversations that can be had or questions that can be asked about Macbeth and Othello. So make mm-hmm. sure you tune sure. into the plays, the thing, because Tim and uh, my dad and a bunch of us will be at various times jumping in over there. Um, and then of course we have uh, the daily poem going on, and then we have Libromania. Uh, we've got a conversation that's going to be posted here any day now. Uh, I had a conversation with a guy named Stephen Bannum, who's a typographer who designed a font that is designed for. Uh, memory retention. I think I mentioned that. So that'll be up anytime now. So Comic Sans? That's yeah, from yeah, we, I actually did ask him about Comic Sans. And he, you did? He kind of had a joke. We kind of laughed about it. Yeah, because, you know, and he said uh, a little preview to that conversation. He said that, um, you know, one of the things you have to understand with, with typography is like, what was a font designed for? Because, you know, Comic Sans was never meant to be you. It was. It was. It had a specific design, and even the designer kind of like doesn't agree with how most people use it now. So uh, it was interesting. He was empathetic to the designer of Comic Sans. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. Well, let's dive in because we are going to talk about chapters thirteen through twenty of Jean Le Carre's "The Spy Who Came in from the Cold." Do any of you? Do either of you ever feel like when you say Jean Le Carre, you should say it as French as possible? I always feel like I need to say John as like Jean. Jean. Jean Jean. Le Carré. (laughs) Not even the man's real name, so, you know. (laughs) Dave, do you know why he chose that as his pen name? Oh, man, I did know why he chose Le Carré. I know why he chose a pen name, but I can't remember off the top of my head why it was. I've read this, though, why he chose that specific name. Um, But I can't remember. So we'll do some research or some industrious listener will. Um, But... This is the so next week we'll have finished the book and we'll be able to dive into spoiler type 
territory. Uh, so for those who are listening, as we go, we won't, um, we won't, die. we won't give away too much because we ended on something of a cliffhanger in the middle of a scene. But I want to talk a lot about this chapter 13, which comes right towards the middle of the book, because I think it's one of the crucial scenes, chapters in the whole book. It's called Pins or Paperclips. And um, I think what we're going to do is uh, do a close reading of this chapter, because I think a lot of the rest of the book uh, sets up... It was set up by this conversation, thematically, dramatically, character-wise, and so forth. So we're actually going to read some of this. And I asked Heidi to be the narrator. I'll play Fiedler and I'll let um, Tim play our star character, Alec Lemus here. Does that, does that still work? That's great. That works great. So um, we'll go, we're going to read a few pages here and then we'll dive in to the, some conversation based on that. It will take us into other parts of the, of the section, but this seems like a good way to, to really dive in deep into this book. Right, and as I said, right in the middle of the book. I mean, not literally page numbers wise, but it's pretty dang close. So yeah. Um, all right, so... Let's see. Where do you want to start? And in fact, actually, there are 26 chapters, and this is the 13th chapter. Yeah, this chapter is, is I was going to say, this is the middle. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's start with let's start with the beginning. Seems okay. like the, the good place to start. So, Tim, you ready? I'm ready. All right. All right. Heidi, take it away, narrator. Fiedler loved to ask questions. Sometimes, because he was a lawyer, he asked them for his own pleasure alone to demonstrate the discrepancy between evidence and perfective truth. He possessed, however that persistent inquisitiveness, which for journalists and lawyers is an end in itself. He went for a walk that afternoon, following the gravel road down into the valley, then branching into the forest along a broad pitted track lined with felled timber. All the time, Fiedler probed, giving nothing about the building and Cambridge Circus and the people who worked there. What social class did they come from? What parts of London did they inhabit? Did husbands and wives work in the same department? He asked about the pay, the leave, the morale, the canteen. He asked about their love life, their gossip, their philosophy. Most of all, he asked about their philosophy. To Lemus, that was the most difficult question of all. What do you mean a philosophy? We're not Marxists. We're nothing. Just people. Are you Christians then? Not many, I shouldn't think. I don't know many. What makes them do it then? They must have a philosophy. Why must they? Perhaps they don't know, don't even care. Not everyone has a philosophy. Then tell me, what is your philosophy? Oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and they walked off in silence for a while, but Fiedler was not to be put off. If they do not know what they want, how can they be so certain they are right? Who the hell said they were? Well, what is the justification then? What is it? For us, it's easy. As I said to you last night, the Abtulong and... I still don't know how to pronounce that, incidentally. And organizations like it are the natural extension of the party's arm. They're in the vanguard of the fight for peace and progress. They are to the party what the party is to socialism. They are the vanguard. Stalin said so. It's not fashionable to quote Stalin, but he said once half a million liquidated is a, is a statistic and one man killed in a traffic accident is a national tragedy. He was laughing, you see, at the bourgeois sensitivities of the mass. He was a great cynic, but what he meant is still true of movement which protects itself against counter-revolution can hardly stop at the exploitation or the elimination, Lemus, of a few individuals. It's all one. We've never pretended to be wholly just in the process of rationalistic society. Some Roman said it, didn't he, in the Christian Bible? It is, it is expedient that one man should die for the benefit of many? I expect so. Then what do you think? What is your philosophy? I just think the whole lot of you are bastards. Hmm. That's a viewpoint I understand. It's primitive, negative, and very stupid, but it is a viewpoint. It exists. <laughs> uh, sorry, I got out of character there. Uh, I broke. Uh, but, but Don't break, about, David. But what about the rest of the circus? It's just a good line. But what about the rest of the circus? I don't know. How should I know? Have you never discussed philosophy with them? No, we're not German. <laughs> I suppose they don't like communism. And that justifies, for instance, the taking of human life. That justifies the bomb in a crowded restaurant. That justifies your write-off rate of agents, all that. I suppose so. You see, for us, it does. I myself would have put a bomb in a restaurant if it brought us further along the road. Afterwards, I would draw the balance. So many women, so many children, and so far along the road. But Christian, and yours is a Christian society, Christians may not draw the balance. 
Why not? They've got to defend themselves, haven't they? Uh, but they have. But they believe in the sanctity of human life. They believe every man has a soul which can be saved. They believe in sacrifice. I don't know. I don't much care. Stalin didn't either, did he? I like the English. My father did too. He was very fond of the English. That gives me a nice warm feeling. <laughs> <laughs> they stopped while Fiedler... Do you want to keep reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go. They stopped while Fiedler gave Lemus a cigarette and lit it for him. They were climbing steeply now. Lemus liked the exercise, walking ahead with long strides, his shoulders thrust forward. Fiedler followed, slight and agile, like a terrier behind his master. They must have been walking for an hour, perhaps more, when suddenly the trees broke above them and the sky appeared. They had reached the top of a small hill and could look down on the solid mass of pine broken only here and there by gray clusters of beech. Across the valley, Lemus could glimpse the hunting lodge, perched below the crest of the opposite hill, low and dark against the trees. In the middle of the clearing was a rough bench beside a pile of logs and the damp remains of a charcoal fire. We'll sit down for a moment, then we must go back. Tell me, this money, these large sums in foreign banks, what did you think they were for? What do you mean? I told you they were payments to an agent. An agent from behind the Iron Curtain? Yes, I thought so. Why? Why did you think so? First, it was a hell of a lot of money. Then the complications of paying him, the special security, and of course, the control being mixed up in it. What do you think the agent did with the money? Look, I've told you, I don't know. I don't even know if he collected it. I don't know anything. I was just the bloody office boy. What did you do with the passbooks for the accounts? I handed them in as soon as I got back to London, together with my phony passport. Did the Copenhagen or Helsinki banks ever write to you in London? To your alias, I mean? I don't know. I suppose any letters would have been passed straight to control anyway. The false signatures you used to open the accounts, control had a sample of them? Yes, I practiced them a lot and they had samples. More than one? Yes, whole pages. I see. Then letters could have gone to the banks after you had opened the accounts. You need not have known. The signatures could have been forged and the letters sent without your knowledge. Yes, that's right. I suppose that's what happened. I sent a lot of bank blank sheets, too. I always assumed someone else took care of the correspondence. But you never did actually know of such correspondence. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all out of proportion. There was a lot of paper going around. This was just part of the day's work. It wasn't something I've given much thought to. Why should I? It was hush-hush, but I've been in a lot of things in my life where you only know a little and someone else knows the rest. Besides, paper bores me stiff. I don't lose any sleep over it. I like the trips, of course. I drew the operational subsistence when it helped. But I didn't sit at my desk all day wondering about Rolling Stone. Besides, I was hitting the bottle a little bit. So you said, and of course, I believe you. I don't give a damn whether you believe me or not. <laughs> I'm glad. That is your virtue. That is your great virtue. It's the virtue of indifference. A little resentment here, a little pride there. But that's nothing. The distortions of a tape recorder. You are objective. It occurred to me that you could still help us establish whether any of that money was ever drawn. There's nothing to stop you writing to each bank and ask for a current statement. We could say you were staying in Switzerland, use an accommodation address. Um, do you see any objection to that? It might work. It depends on whether Control has been corresponding with the bank independently over my forged signature. It might not fit in. I don't see that we have much to lose. What have you got to win? It's, if the money has been drawn, which I agree is doubtful, we shall know where the agent was on a certain day. That seems to be a useful thing to know. You're dreaming. You'll never find him, Fiedler. Not on that kind of information. Once he's in the West, he can go to any consulate, even in a small town, and get a visa for another country. How are you any the wiser? You don't even know whether the man is East German. What are you after? You said you're accustomed to knowing only a little, and I cannot answer your question without telling you what you should not know. But Rolling Stone was an operation against us, I can assure you. Us? The GDR. The zone, if you prefer. I'm not really so sensitive. But what about me? Suppose I don't write the letters. Isn't it time to talk about me, Fiedler? Why not? 
I've done my bit, Fiedler. You and Peters between you have got all I know. I never agreed to write banks letters to banks. It could be a bloody dangerous, it could be bloody dangerous, a thing like that. That doesn't worry you, I know. As far as you're concerned, I'm expendable. Now, let me be frank. There are, as you know, two stages in the interrogation of a defector. The first stage in your case is nearly complete. You've told us all we can reasonably record. You have not told us whether your service favors pins or paperclips because we haven't asked you and because you did not consider the answer worth volunteering. There is a process on both sides of unconscious selection. Now, it is always possible, and this is the worrying thing, Lemus, it is always entirely possible that in a month or two, we shall unexpectedly and quite desperately need to know about the pins and paperclips. That is normally accounted for in the second stage. That part of the bargain where you, which you refuse to accept in Holland. You mean you're going to keep me on ice? The profession of defector demands great patience. Very few are suitably qualified. Let's stop there. Okay. Um, that's kind of where I marked to stop. Now we went, we read like five pages there. So if we were, if we were boring, I apologize. You could have, you could have skipped ahead. Um, <laughs> It's your fault, listener. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Jeez. Don't you know how a 15-second skip-ahead works? Um, or is it 30? I don't know. So, now, <laughs> um, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of theme stuff going on here. There's some great writing going on here. There's some great characterization. Tim, as a playwright, I'd love to hear what you think about the dialogue here. Like, what, what works for you? Because it really works for me, but I'm not a playwright. So, I'm curious, as someone who has had to craft scenes of various degrees of drama, what in particular really stands out to you here? It, it um, strikes me as a fencing match in which mm. neither one is actually lunging for the other, attempting <laughs> to like, strike a blow until late. Um, mm. in the, on the very last page that we read, mm-hmm. uh, but Rolling Stone, you said, was an operation against us, I can assure you. Us, says Lemus, that to me seems like a uh, thrust in a parry of some mm. sort, but uh-huh. the rest of it is it's this it's this dance between these two characters, and neither one. I mean, they're like two Lemus boxers really, who are not. They're kind of leaning into each other, but they're not really yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the swing, yeah, yeah, and and it's probably the first round, and they didn't come out swinging the first round. They're kind of they're still testing each other. Mm. They're probing each other for for weaknesses. Mm. Mm. Who do you think I got the upper hand here, Heidi? Lemus. Why? Because he is, um, I think because he knows more mm. than Fiedler here. He is drawing him into a web mm. um, the, that was intentional. One of the things I love about this par- this chapter is that that idea of a web because as, as readers, I mean, we've read the book, so it changes perspective a little bit, but even as I've read it multiple times, I was drawn and trying to remember, wait, which, who knows what here, what's the actual truth? Like, are they, is Lemus totally yeah. able, is he really uh, totally, does he know everything he needs to know? And I'm trying to remember what it, how the book ends and all that. And then it's like, wait, what does Fiedler know? And how much of what he knows is true and how much of it is him being caught up in the, in the web. And then as, as readers, am I getting, like who who are my sympathies with, and do uh-huh. I who's the bad guy here, and who's the good guy, and is there a bad guy, and is there a good guy? And one of the things I love about this chapter is the way it complicates all those questions. I don't think right. it's saying I don't think it's a book that's being nihilistic and saying that those things don't exist, good guys and bad guys and heroes and villains and so forth. But I think right. it is offering right here in the middle of the book a lot of complications about what we as readers are supposed to think of these characters. So when we get so in this section, then Heidi, do you view how do you view um, both these characters. Do you view Fiedler here as being villainous and and uh, Lemus as being heroic, or how does that work out for you in this section? Right. That's. I think that is a a good question and a really fascinating question to explore because, in in terms of villain hero, in this, I, I'm not. I don't think there is one here at all. In fact, I think that this is the beginning of a turning point in your view of Fiedler. So I think most readers will read this, find his um, uh, philosophy, I mean, absolutely, not just objectionable, but reprehensible. 
right? Mm-hmm. It is that that is the true communist. In fact, I mean that that's the true evil of the 20th century is that you can sacrifice not just people but an entire civilization of people, groups of people, the bomb in the restaurant, you can liquidate people for an idea. That's the true evil of the 20th century. And that you see here in this chapter as this man's philosophy, he's promoting it. And yet somehow you get to the end of the chapter and you don't hate that guy. Why is that? Hmm. Uh, Heidi, I I was going to ask you a question about that. Is the reason, is part of the reason why is that he is honest about it and Lemus is sort of I don't know that Lemus is dishonest, but what what he's what he's thrusting at Lemus is that Lemus comes from a culture where human life is sacred and yet his organization violates that sanctity. Do we sympathize a little bit with Fiedler because (laughs) his abhorrent philosophy, he's at least kind of like consistent about it? Right. I Hmm. think that that I Hmm. that is what is so interesting to me about this this book and particularly this chapter. I think David's absolutely right to hone in on this chapter. I think this chapter is the microcosm of of this book. Hmm. So that this is the war of uh, ideas. So you, I was. Should we go to a different chapter? Because now we just agree. So we just <laughs> right. So we're. But we have here the 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 embodiment of the war of ideas that took place in the cold war so as tim pointed out you have a whole society of, uh, in the united states western western society that is um at war with itself right between communism and capitalism and the commun and both of them the excuse me the capitalists value human life <clears throat> and yet because it's so expendable then they become cynics like lemus yeah hmm. Right. Mm. But then on the other side, you have the idea. Fiedler's like a true idealist. He believed yeah. this. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that case, it's sympathetic. We're always sympathetic towards someone who actually believes something. Mm-hmm. But the problem with his belief is that his belief, now he has justified not just murder, but genocide. And of course, we can't accept that, but we're attracted mm-hmm. to someone who actually believes in something. So mm-hmm. you have the war of ideas. I mean, I don't want it. This book is not an allegory. It's a spy novel with actual human people in it. But this but it chapter, is literary. This closest you get to, to being able to allergy allegorize these characters. I don't think that's what's happening, but you mm-hmm. do see the war of ideas in Western culture that's playing out in violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I love this chapter too that I, is because I think that like a great, like any great liter, literary novelist, like this is where this book branches into the literary, yes, is in agreed. the way that it, it, it folds these metaphors and these comparisons and all these motifs into this uh, this classic genre scene, right? Like anybody who's ever read a spy novel or watched a spy movie or read a crime or something related to crime fiction or whatever, you know that the interrogation scene is coming, right? Mm-hmm. That every single version of it is going to have some kind of interrogation scene. Where yeah. were you on this day? How much do you know? Someone's trying to to endure against somebody else who's trying to get information out of them. It's like the quintessential scene other than maybe like, you know, right. <laughs> the detective walking under the streetlight in the rain or something. But, <laughs> but, he does so he's able to take that classic scene and add all these literary elements to it. For example, the name of the chapter is uh paper clips or pins, pins right? Pins, yeah. Pin, what is the name of it's um pins and paper clips. Yeah, pins yeah. and paper clips. And I think that that metaphor itself speaks to what you're talking about there. Yeah. It says, you know, Fiedler, he, Fiedler says, you know, you didn't tell us whether your service favors pins or paper clips because we haven't asked you. Mm. But the the narrow difference between pins and paper clips in some way I think mirrors what you're saying about the differences between these characters and the way they view the world. Yes. Yes. Um, and then that they're interchangeable in the sense that those are two different things. Pins are not paper clips. Paper clips are not pins. Mm-hmm. And yet they accomplish the same purpose. Mm-hmm. And they are... Um, and, and, and there's a statement in that. Mm-hmm. Like either whether you're the cynic or the idealist, whether you are the capitalist or the communist, what you end up is, to use Shakespearean terms, a stage full of dead bodies. And that is what they're, everybody's trying to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So do you, Tim, do you, I, I just, sorry, I'm like listening to you guys and I'm like, I never thought about that. It's really, I mean, 
using pins or paper clips, I didn't see that as sort of an overlay for these different types of characters and how they fit into the system. That was really observant. Close reading. Hashtag. <laughs> I applaud you. I applaud you. <laughs> Hashtag happy reading. Um, so, okay. One of the things you, you mentioned... So Fiedler says to Lemus, your virtue is indifference. It's the virtue of indifference. That's such a good line. It's so good. Is he, what is, is he being... Um, is he... Is he kind of trying to egg him on? Is he trying to make fun of him? What 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 is he what is he doing there when he says you have this virtue of indifference? Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Because I thought about this a lot. I've read this multiple times, as you guys know, as I've said. And every time I read it, I don't know how we're supposed to take that line. Is this a idealistic, uh, you know, communist person looking at somebody else and saying, "I wish I could, in some ways, be more like you." Or is he actually, is he saying your indifference is what has allowed you to stay alive? Like, what does he mean when he says that? Because I think that that line and this idea of, uh-huh. of um, everyone has a philosophy, I think those are the two crucial lines to understand yeah. this whole book. So I'd like to hone in on those two lines if, if we can. And we can just, I can just say, I'll just say that right now then. Let's compare that phrase with Fiedler's, with Lemus's phrase, not everyone has a philosophy. So right. Lemus is the one who says that. Fiedler's the one who says, uh, you, your virtue is your indifference. Mm. I think those are those two perspectives. I think are are worth comparing and examining. What about those two characters causes them to say those things? And you know, what do we mean by them? What do they mean by them? Uh, David, I think for Fiedler, because he is consistent with his terrible philosophy, Fiedler can have passion, and I don't think he's a, like by temperament a passionate man. Um, but you mean like he's pretty controlled. He's able to, he's a well-controlled yeah. person, self-controlled. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But he's he German, can man. execute his duty with genuine fire mm. because he is both furthering his philosophical goals and he's acting in, um, consistency with them. Whereas Lemus, I think has, he comes from a Christian society that extols the value and sanctity of human life, and yet he has to liquidate human life in order to protect that society, and thus he's acting in violation of his philosophy. What's the solution? You have to be indifferent, and you That's have right. to just indifferent, and you have to just do your job. Hmm. Right. Well, and to to add to that, I keep thinking about um, something like. Um, on a much smaller scale, something like the vaccination debate amongst mothers. Like I'm a mom, I have kids. We all talk about ad nauseum for a couple of years when our kids are little about whether or not we vaccinated them, blah, blah, blah. And one of the arguments for something like vaccination is you're, you have the luxury to not vaccinate your children because we come from a society in which almost everybody is vaccinated. Okay. So because of that, then the few have the freedom to not, but what happens when everybody doesn't? That's one of the arguments on one side of this. And I think some of that comes through in this scene, this idea of what, what Fiedler is saying to him is because you come from a Christian society, you have the luxury of being indifferent (laughs) because the entire society is supporting then this other way of thinking, that's the idea. Someone posted on, on Facebook, I think it was Esther Bills, was it, about the Sin Eater idea from mm. the Bourne? Right. I, oh, yeah, right, the Bourne right, Legacy. Right. Shout out yes. to the Bourne Legacy, by the way. That's a much maligned <laughs> movie that is amazing. I'm just going to say it. I love that movie. Good. I'm glad you love it. Um, <laughs> we did talk about that this year at the Literary Retreat. Um, yes, we did. Much maligned. The, yes, it is much maligned. Um, But that idea that because when you come from a society that actually accepts a sanctity of human life, then there are a few people who then have the responsibility, like Lemus does, of absorbing kind of the sins of the multitude within Mm -hmm. a small group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that Jean Le Creux is is interested in, the impact of that on those people. Mm. 
Yeah, well, and, what that does to a person. Yes. What does it do when you're the sin eater, when you are absorbing, then giving the freedom of people like us to sleep in our beds and have discussions on podcasts, but there actually are a group of people who are dealing with this all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that makes me realize that there's a counter to what he's saying then, right? So he yes. says, he says, they believe in the sanctity of human life. And then this line, they believe every soul has a, Every man has a soul which can be saved. They believe in sacrifice. And mm-hmm. I love the kind of, the way he, that last phrase flips it because if there is, if every man has a soul which can be saved, then the implication is there's also, every man has a soul which can be lost. That's right. Yes. And they believe and in think, sacrifice and sacrifice is essentially a loss, right? Right. Giving up And for yourself. Lemus. So then, so then I think we see in this 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 is why I think this whole chapter is microcosm of this, right? Like that there are, you have two choices then. You become indifferent and hardened or you become a zealot on the other side. And then you have the meeting of these two philosophies in this conversation. Mm. And the reason that Fiedler is saying you have the virtue of indifference, I think part of that is affirming, hey, I get it. I get you out of choice and this is the way you went. Mm. And that's probably more of a Western path. Mm than the communists who tend to be idealists. But he's also saying, because you've given up, then, and here's here's the deception to him, I can trust you. I think that you're just, you know, I believe what you have to say then. I Because I know you're not a zealot. I believe you're not trying to trick me. You're just telling me because you're indifferent. Mm. And then the, that, the rest of the story kind of plays out whether or not Fiedler was right about that. Mm. What about the so then? What about that's it's kind of, so shadowy? Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's so shadow. I'm just like hearing you recount that, Heidi. It's like, oh my gosh, all of the psychological angles associated with these two characters trying to figure each other out. To say nothing of all of the other characters, um, control, etc., who are kind of like lurking behind the scenes attempting to pull the strings from afar it's just so shadowy and hard to take hearted like monitor like who's doing what right and in that way that's where you see like our as genius i think because he's so good at uh having his finger like being un- in control of well he's so good at layering the, all these thematic elements these thematic gray areas confusions and questions into uh questions of plot right like it's still right. being driven by the plot, but underneath the plot is all these complications that make the book so much richer. Right. Um, yeah. And like it takes a real master to be able to, you know, it takes a, it takes a master to be able to write a great thriller anyway, right? To just have your finger on top of all the, the plot elements and make it mysterious and fun and all the things that go into that. And then you layer in these deeper philosophical ideas and that's where right. it becomes true literature. Uh, so, but let's talk about this idea of not everyone has a philosophy. Let's talk about Lemus' side. Yeah. So he's Fiedler's pushing on him, right? He's trying to find this pressure point to figure out what motivates him. And first of all, my question is, why is Fiedler pushing on that so hard? Is he just trying to understand like what what in the world motivates this guy, or is there some kind of ulterior motive? What do you think about that, Tim? I, gosh, I say this with some hesitancy. I read it as genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. And. Because I think he's so, Lemus, this man without a philosophy is so foreign to Fiedler. Like, how can someone live without a philosophy that he's genuinely curious about it? Now, I would like to know whether or not, I think, Heidi, you kind of touched on this, Lemus's indifference. How do I say this? No, that's not right. Whether or not Lemus's. Um, statements of his philosophy, which is definitely a lowercase p philosophy, um, is also a luxury of living in the Western world. So he basically has two statements of philosophy. One of them is, um, I just think the whole lot of you are bastards. That's Uh one. And then the other one is... um, we're not Marxists. We're nothing, just people. <clears throat> and right. I, I think both of those are kind of, that is 
a man who is born into freedom, who has the luxury of not having to opt. How do I say this? I have like a really complex thought that I don't know quite how to say. Um, the Western world that Lemus was born into has laws in place and a sort of like social stability such that Lemus doesn't have to form a counter philosophy to opt out of that. Like his, his everyday life outside of right. being a spa, like all of us is it's an easy, it's an easy life to live. Um, but people who are in systems that are just grossly unjust, in order to opt out of that gross injustice, that systemic gross injustice, you have to have a philosophy. You have to kind of like know what you're fighting for. And it seems like Fiedler, presuming, you know, like coming from the recent history of the czarist regime i know that's like a couple of generations before this book is written but still it's fresh enough in his mind and the kind of like the travails of world war ii and what happens in soviet russia it's probably fresh enough in his memory that he knows he's mm. got to kind of pick a philosophical side mm. he's got to be with mm. the Trotskyites, or he's got to be with the Stalinists, or he's mm. got to be with the old school czars. He has to make a choice. And now he meets this man, Lemus, who apparently doesn't even really seem to care. He right. just is against, like, you know, these bad guys, these, you know, Eastern Bloc bad guys, but he has no real conviction. And I think that's bewildering to him unless he's kind of curious about it. Yeah. I agree. He's probably trying to accomplish something to you, but I agree. And I mean, if you put yourself in, in, in this situation, which just to be clear, I am not a spy nor a communist. Mm. But, Boy, that, <laughs> gosh, that's you know what? I will say that someone who is <laughs> not a spy or a communist, that is a spy or a communist is going to talk all the time about how they're not a spy or a communist. How they're not. So, so you just don't you know. know. What, Heidi, the rest of us just don't have to say anything. You don't That's know. Right. You don't know. Maybe I am, or maybe there's another secret. Tim, so. it feels like he's now covering up something. <laughs> the, yeah, the lady does protest too much. Too much. But I will say, in this, if I was, I would, I would definitely lean toward the Fiedler side here. I'm much more prone to being a zealot than to giving up. Right. I always <laughs> want to know why I'm doing something, mm. and I will act on what I believe, mm. and I. Th- and and I agree with Tim. I think I'm so I'm I'm always just like so fascinated to understand why people do what they do. And so I do think that there's an element of genuine curiosity and also gathering information to take them down. Like if I understand what they believe, how can I turn other defectors? What mm. kind of arguments could I pose against them? Because he's a zealot, so he's thinking about turning people yeah. and and finding weaknesses within an organization. I think one of the most brilliant lines in this whole chapter is when he says, when Lima says he's been drinking and Fiedler says, and of course I believe you. Yeah. I love <laughs> that line. Right. And it, that does make me think, maybe he knows more than what he's saying. Because I think he's trying mm-hmm. to figure out, he desperately wants to take down Moon. And we know that from him um, mm. already. And so he's got to be thinking, is this, am I being played? Mm. Mm. is he a double agent? But yeah. he so wants to believe it. I think part of, he wants to believe Lemus's story, which is why he says his indifference is a virtue. He's tricked by that. I think he's, I think Lemus tricks him here. I'm glad you bring up this concept of like people telling the truth because even the very first sentence of, I mean, you didn't really say it that way, but you brought the yeah. concept. Oh no, it's true. Because he says, the chapter begins, Fiedler loved to ask questions. Yeah. And then it says, sometimes because he was a lawyer, he asked them for his own pleasure alone to demonstrate the discrepancy between evidence and perfective truth. He how possessed, however, that persistent inquisitiveness for journalists and lawyers, or which for journalists and lawyers is an end in itself. And I, lo- I just like the, that, the distinction that he's making there. I think it speaks to what you're saying about how he wants to believe him. And so in some ways, it seems like he's at minimum trying to convince himself that mm-hmm. Lemus is actually telling him the truth. But I love that Lekari puts that in here because it's clearly setting up the chapter to be about the question of lying. Yes. It's about the question of how do you get the truth from someone and how do you determine whether or not they are telling the truth? 
And then on right. the other hand, how do you make someone think that what you're saying, though not the truth, is the truth? Right. What do you think is Fiedler's motive? Yeah. Some of these important, these big questions, David. Well, I think that, I love that you guys talked about how he's a zealot. I think that's a great word. And, I, and Tim, I love how you talked about the choices that you have to make when you live in a world like that. Um, because I, I, think a, I think a lot of what's going on here is, is a, or underneath the surface is this question of guilt. Yeah. Because I think huh. that both of them are bearing, I, th- I think in Lemus's character in particular, you see it throughout the whole book. He's our narrator to wear in his head, or he's our protagonist to wear in his head. And so what is clear the guilt and grief and and a life of uh, and and the the um the implications of the life that he's lived are wearing on him and so for him um that indifference i think in some ways is how you deal with the things that you've done and then on the other hand you've got fiedler who turns to being a zealot it mo- both motivates and is a way of of um explaining why he's done the things that he's done Mm-hmm. And I think that based and one of the things that we're finding here is it not only is it about what you tell other people, but about what you tell yourself. You know, you how you how you deal with your your grief and your guilt has a lot to do with the things that you convince yourself are true. Yeah. Both about yourself and about the reasons why you did them. Mont, or Fiedler says, you know, for the cause I would I would do all of this. You know, I would I would right. kill people. I would make the count. I, I'd be very rationalistic about it uh, in support of the cause. And and he seems to you know, he seems to uh, assuage his, con- his conscience in some way um, with rationalism, with the cause, and with the rationalism behind the cause. And I think that that's kind of what's going on with Fiedler, whereas with Lemus, he, I think, is having a much harder time. In some ways, I think the reason he agrees to this whole plan that Control and the, and the circus have concocted is because of the guilt that's eating at him. Right. And he dives into that as a way of, in some ways, paying penance, uh, making, it, making, making it so that the people who he has lost and the things that he has done didn't happen for no reason. Right. Well, that's going to be my question then, to, as a follow-up to what you just said, which I think is really insightful. Do you believe him that he doesn't have a philosophy? Is he telling the truth? I, I asked myself that question. How did yourself answer yourself? <laughs> myself said to myself that he used to. I think he used to. Um, and I think that he somewhere along the way had to do enough bad things that he either had to jettison his philosophy and not care where he had to keep his philosophy and tolerate an unbearable burden of guilt Mm. and i think he jettisoned the philosophy Mm. Mm. i do you think that a good reading i think is there is there a bad reading (laughs) (laughs) there's better and worse for sure yeah true uh man i think i i I don't. I, do you agree with that, Heidi? I think I, I think I buy that. Yeah, I think so. But I don't think it's possible to not have a philosophy. There is. Okay, can I, can I, can I point towards something else that he said and see if we can make a distinction? Yeah. 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 Because um, he starts by saying, "What's your philosophy?" And and like Lemus, and that's what Fiedler's saying is, "Give me your philosophy. What is the thing that is motivating you here?" Like, what is the thing behind all the things that you're doing and the things that right. you've done, the way that you've lived? But then he switches, you know, Lemus kind of snaps at him. Yep. And yeah. And then um, he says, if they do not know what they want, Fiedler says this, if they don't know what they want, how can they be so certain they are right? And then Lemus basically says, who said they're certain they're right? Right. And then this is where Fiedler kind of shifts gears. He says, what is the justification then? And yes. so I think in some ways, maybe, maybe it's true that um, Lemus... Um, he's buried his philosophy. And now the question is, what justifies the things that we're doing? Because that's a much more narrow and specific question than what is your philosophy? Right. right. And the right. justification is where the guilt comes in, the conscience comes in. That's really a matter of, like, of self-reflection in a way that maybe a philosophy is something you can bury. Justification is not. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, and I, I think, I mean, there's things I want to say that I can't say without spoilers. So I Do can't. Do we tell people to put yeah. the uh, spoiler earmuffs on? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it just, 
the whole book as we're coming, you know, I know we're heading into the resolution of it um, next week is an exploration of what Lemus's philosophy is. Like his final actions at the end of this book tell us his philosophy. Mm. And that's, and, and the development of it, as Tim pointed out, how things have changed over the years and how he's dealt with being, you know, what we're calling a sin eater. Mm. That's not this, that. Mm. So do so, yeah. so, there, so there's this bit, well, sorry, I'm trying to build, I have a question for you to, as a follow-up. Yeah. Is that, are you, is that okay? Yeah. I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you. No. Um, so Fiedler says, he says, what is your philosophy? And Lemus says, well, my, he essentially says, my philosophy is I think the whole lot of you are bastards. Uh-huh. Right. And then Fiedler says, I understand this. It's a viewpoint. It's primitive, but it is a thing that exists, which is, that's where I laughed. And yeah. then he says, what you've, so you've never discussed philosophy, right? You've never discussed mm-hmm. philosophy with your people. And he says, well, we're not Germans. Is, yeah, that's really <laughs> so fun. Good. As the grandchild of, of a German who was there in Germany during this time, and right. whose tendencies have been passed along through our family. Um, it is weird, though, that we, talk, we, are, we do talk about philosophy in my house. But, um, but he says, we're not... Well, I guess, yeah, because we're Germans, we talk about philosophy. Um, but he says, is, is that... Can that be... Is, is he actually telling us the truth about what his philosophy is when he says, well, I just think the whole lot of you are, are bastards? I mean, is that a philosophy in and of itself? Is that answering the question? Yes, absolutely. That is his philosophy. That is his philosophy. If you guys who know the end, look at the end. That is his philosophy. You're but, evil. But, but, the, but here's the thing. In order to say that, you have to have in your mind a standard by which you have judged the whole lot of them and found them to be bastards. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, because that's a loaded word. That's a morality word. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's by etymology. Right, right, right. By, yeah, by I, I don't think, it, like, I don't right? think, like, yes. playing around was accidentally <laughs> he's not that saying word. you're, what he's saying is you're all bad people. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to call someone a bad person, you have to have in your mind a standard by which someone is measured to be good or bad. And Lemus still has that. He's just, as Tim said, lost it because of all of the gray, like the way he's been pummeled by his life. And that I think is true. That is his philosophy. And it sounds bad, but like it's, there's some goodness to that. And that plays into his... Can I, can I... Yeah, go, go. I, I think that is his philosophy. I would countercharge him that that is an insufficient that is a really paltry philosophy Would and, you say that it is primitive negative and very stupid a viewpoint but it exists <laughs> i would i would i wouldn't say that for the same reasons that uh Fiedler does but i do and to make it kind of contemporary i think that my experience with kind of like the popular conversation around politics and society in the united states is largely a negative philosophical conversation. In other words, um, hey, what do you believe? I believe I'm against those people. Right. Do you believe? I believe I'm against those people. Right. I but think like the a whole positive, lot of you bastards. Yep. Right, right, right. But a positive assertion of what a person believes, I believe this is the standard. I believe like this is what human life is, you know, for. That's a positive assertion, and that can yield negative statements like "I'm against a lot of you bastards." Right. But it's not a it's not a philosophy in itself. So that's. Well, I, I hope somebody I, didn't listen with their kids, and they're gonna have like a seven year old wandering around calling their brother that. Oh yeah, <laughs> we already we already read it. We already it's read it aloud. But now yeah. Macintosh yeah. is like actually it's, claiming the words for his own. Like, it's a I'm, quote. Like, Every time quote. you say it, it's in quotation marks. <laughs> That's right. There's air quotes around it every time I say it. Now I'm covered. Um, so, so when I got to this part of the book and Lemus is issuing his negative philosophy, I am against you guys. We are against you guys. I started, like the alarms were going off in the back of my head and I thought, okay, so what, when he gets on the stand or when he's put in his absolute 
crisis moment, which surely he's going to be put in at the end of this book, what is he going to stand up for? Or because at some point he has to stand, he's going to have to stand up for something. He can't just like sit down and point the finger at the communists. He's going to have to stand up for something. That to me is the big question that's looming for the end of this book. Hmm. Right. I totally to your question, David, like, is it going to be resolved? Right. That's, yeah, that's my next resolved? bit. Yep. Right. So what's the answer? I, well, I mean, you can't say it without saying the end of the book. Next let, week. let me ask you this then. Let's, what, so what's the payoff we're looking for? Because all these complicated ideas have been presented here, all this complicated characterization and all that kind of thing. So typically right. in a dialogue of this sort, you know, in this kind of a book, the, the idea is you're going to get some kind of a payoff Right, you know, following it, something is going to get resolved. What for that to happen? Given the questions that have been asked, what has to happen for that payoff to feel uh, um, significant enough, or uh, to resolve what you know, to make you feel like it's uh, resolved properly? Is there a word that I'm looking for here that I can't? Think? David, can I can I ask your question to see if I understand it? Yeah, you probably would do better than me. So go ahead. <laughs> No, I just, I want to make sure that I'm like, I have an idea of what you're saying, but I want to make sure that it's right. Mm-hmm. What I think you're saying is La Carre is kind of building this subterranean structure within the book. Mm-hmm. And that structure has to culminate with a, with a problem, with a crisis that needs to be resolved. Based on what we see of that structure, what is the crisis that needs to be resolved? Is that what you're asking? Yes, largely. But I'm also thinking, um, I also am kind of thinking, first of all, I love the idea that there's a subterranean structure. Great phrase. We should we should yep. remember that. Right. Seriously. Uh, but, yeah, exactly. Close reads. Diving into the subterranean <laughs> we structure. We believe in subterranean structure. <laughs> we need to get like a thing where it's like a hard hat. Like a hard hat. It's like a yes. hat. It's a hard hat. It says close reads on it. Diving into the subterranean structures. Um, and by the way, by the way, just as a pause, another shout out to Angelina. Yeah. yeah. I think this is what Angelina is like as good as anyone I've ever talked to. She's so good on subterranean structure. That's like true. This, there's a craft underneath all great literature and she had this like tremendous ability to like pick it out and to articulate it. Anyway, sorry, David. Yeah, I'm sure she, and that, presumably that's what her podcast will do. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, that's what I'm asking, but I'm also wondering like, is there something that's gonna like... Is there a is there something that needs to be resolved like that's going to make it feel emotionally the way we um, want it to? So it's both of those things. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Well, what we want to catharsis see, part of it. Yes, I think whenever you, whenever in a book like this, characters and situations are under so much pressure, and that the the thing that we're looking for is something that makes it worth it. Mm-hmm. that um, in a book like this, I mean, in this particular story, we're looking for the um, the whole colossal double agent trick to work out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the expectation that we're looking for throughout this book. Is this going to work? Is it going to have a sad ending and it didn't work um, and that will have some kind of literary meaning or is it going to pay off in the sense that that, that this whole colossal bluff, all the dangers that he's been in, all the pressures he's been, in, been through, um, uh, both personally and professionally, uh, will, uh, you know, catch the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And he gets to come home safe. He's going to come in from the cold. It's in the title. That's the thing we're looking for. Yeah. And we know that that's a metaphor on multiple levels. Professionally, it's the metaphor for the spy being able to come home and retire and live out the quiet life and, and kind of recover from lick his wounds. Um, and then obviously, we also know that there's an existential metaphor here for this character, Lemus, that we're coming to care about. Hmm. Do you still have about of the Cold War? Yes. And there's a political metaphor in that, exactly. Yeah. Multiple levels. How do you, um, we got to wrap this up soon, but you mentioned last week that one of the things you were intrigued by during this section is how uh, the conversation begins to flow when they're outside. Yes, yes. And how does that relate to this concept uh, to what the, to these themes and the and the and the idea of the title? I mean, what were you thinking when you were when you were talking about that? Because I know people will right. say, "Hey, how do you mention this previously?" Let's talk about it. I don't know whose voice I just used, but it's a <laughs> poorer version of my own, I guess. 
Um, well, yeah. And in this, I mean, you, you see it most clearly in this chapter that as they're moving and as they're walking, as they're going outside, they are, um, there's, there's actually some really lovely natural description mm-hmm. that's kind of interspersed throughout this, which I was paying even more attention to as a, because I was, those were the sections I was reading. And so I'm seeing at these critical moments in the conversation, then, um, they're seeing this beautiful countryside that they're in mm-hmm. and the, um, the inside, the, the, the reference to, I, I, I thought it was just a delightful little detail that the only reference to an inside structure in this chapter is to a hunting lodge. Yeah. Cause that's what this is, right? It's a hunting mission for both of them. Yeah. And, and so, that, yeah. Well, I'm not saying no, there's that great line at the beginning Fiedler probed all the time. Fiedler probed, giving nothing, which is yes. I, I. That's a fantastic sentence, by the way. But that goes yes, along with that same theme. Yes. So yeah, as they're outside, they're. Um, that's that. That's when the action is happening. Not when they're stuck inside in the hunting lodge and they're they're in the they're they're stuck. There's that that kind of image of that. It's that prison imagery, really. Um, the walls closing in upon Lemus and upon Fiedler, and they have to get outside in order to have any kind of real connection or conversation. That makes me think of the idea of of conscience again, of mm-hmm. our own, of our own souls, like of the idea that um, we can be so we can get so inside ourselves that we almost right. that we trap ourselves, right? That we're not able to express what's actually going on. Or we or we or what whether we're sort of inside ourselves or not. Like we often have this inability to to express what justifies the things that we do or why we do the things that we do, why we're upset about something, why we're motivated to do something. And that's like being in that hunting lodge. Like you you're trapped, you can't get out, you can't express it. And it guides everything that you're doing sometimes to to disastrous effect, right? Right. Uh, to you and other people around you. And it's not until it's all over that you even realize it's possible, what's happened, right? Right. Um, but then sometimes you're outside. You can you can get out of that. You can you can your perspective gets expanded, and it allows you to not only just see the whole world around you, but see inside yourself. So I love right. that they're able to be more introspective the more of the world that they see. Yes, That's, I just I love that that bit of dramatic irony that that yeah, like, puts a reversal. There. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Tim, do you have any final thoughts as we kind of wrap this up? I do. We didn't have time to talk about Liz during this mm-hmm. discussion. Yeah, I, I think, think that the subterranean structure of the book lends itself that there will... I, I think when I was reading this book for the first time, I knew that the relationship between Liz and Lemus was going to come back into focus because we see that Liz is... She goes to Leipzig because she's invited by the Communist Party. She doesn't really understand why she's been invited, but she's hoping it's going to get closer, get her closer to Lemus. Um, and Liz and Lemus are ideological opposites, and yet they're lovers. So right. I think that, like there's kind of this, there's this. I don't know. There's like a mirroring going on between the relationship between. Lemus and Fiedler in 13 and Liz and Lemus throughout the rest of the book. Like what's going to happen there? So that's what I'm, that's what I would be looking for in reading the end of the book. Yeah. The Liz thing was, I wanted to bring her up. Um, but it, I think she's going to be a key. She's going to be the, one of the key characters we discuss as we discuss the conclusion. So how do you, yeah. you want to, um, you want to add? Yeah, I I want to point out the similarities between um, Fiedler and Control here, um, and I don't mean necessarily in the plot points, but in the the, this, the impact on Lemus. Lemus has the same reaction to Fiedler that he does to Control here, which is stop talking about this stuff. You're threatening me. I need to shut down all of this philosophical conversation. Um, but the question always comes back to who's playing who, hmm. right? And in, in, in any kind of given, in any conversation in this whole novel, somebody is being played. I thought and, you were going to say in any given marriage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's amazing. I have some follow-up questions. We can do like a little workshop, you guys. Yes. So pay attention to that. That is um, the, I guess, just that dynamic of who's being played in, in all of the conversations um, and the uh, kind of how, how Lemus reacts to the people who ask him philosophical questions. I think that's interesting and important. Hmm. Sam, what's it again? Subterranean what? Structure. Subterranean structures. Nice. It's like an, what, an aqueduct or something? No, I think it's that's... An aqueduct no, those are above ground, aren't they? From yeah, Bob Dylan's acoustic ears. Yeah, that was such an obscure joke. I'm with you. Joke. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Okay, good. Like you and three other people are like, that was pretty good. And everybody else is like, Tim. Heidi, like, come on. Which Welcome side of that joke Earth. are you on? I loved it. I thought it was great. I'm in the club. <laughs> good. I love it. There's four people. Thank you, Heidi. You're welcome. It might just be the three of us. We might want to end the show now. <laughs> but are you homesick, Tim? Nicely done. I Yes, nicely done, David. <laughs> um, okay, well, we should end this. Thank you so much to both of you, of course. And if you're listening, don't forget about all the great stuff here on the Close Reads Podcast Network, The Daily Poem, Libromania, and The Plays the Thing, of course. Um, they just finished up their discussion of Acts 5 of Julius Caesar. So that will go up on Monday. And then um, if you have questions, make sure you post those. Um, we will do the end of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold here on Close Reads. And then we'll follow that up with our Q&A episode. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we'll jump into Little Britches after that, the Ralph Moody book. And that will be Heidi and uh, Adam Andrews from over at Center for Lit joining me for that conversation. And then Tim's going to be jumping over onto some Shakespeare for a few weeks uh, doing Macbeth and Othello. Some some nice uh, happy plays for you. And then uh, we'll jump into Sense and Sensibility after that. So I apologize if that's a little... that. That changes a little bit of a uh, you know, little bit of chaos for you, um, but hopefully that won't be too big of a deal. And totally worth it for the special guest. It really yeah, is. I think a so. I'll preview. be excited dot, once dot, we dot, can dot, announce that. Once we can announce that, I think that will be people will be very excited about that. Yeah. Some confirmation. Well, as always, thanks to everyone who's been listening and leaving comments and leaving questions and starred reviews and all that. Join the conversation over on the Close Reads Facebook group if you'd like. Don't forget about our email newsletter. Uh, we'll send one of those out when we begin a new book. And of course, we are on Twitter and Instagram as well. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Talk to you next week. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine I'm-